Now we're going to have prayers, the Bible reading. That's what we're going to have. Hi, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Rebecca. And today I'm going to read from Romans 3, 21 to 26. And you can find it on page 1129 in the Blue Bibles. Okay. Um, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I'd like to invite Mike up now. And um, I'm just going to pray for the sermon. Okay. Um. Uh, It's a pleasure for me to be here with you and to share in this time in the Word. Um, It's going to be a bit bit of a sort of, I guess, a one-off thing. I'm sort of, you know, dropping in and flying in and flying out. So I thought, what do you do? And uh, I've got a few sermons I like to do with these one-offs. But one is a, a sermon I do on Romans. Uh, but it, it feels a little bit like someone, like you've got a, a book club, someone's dropping in and kind of, you know, reading a chapter of War and Peace, then leaving, you know, this big magnum opus, because, you know, Romans is kind of like, you know, the, the, the Magna Carta of Christian theology, where Paul sp- explains the gospel in great theological depth. And we've got, we've got to appreciate that this is Paul's longest letter. I think it's a spectacularly rich, dense and complicated letter. But at the end of the day, what Paul is trying to do, he's writing to a group of churches in Rome, a group of churches he did not plant himself. And he wants to make sure that both he and they are singing off the same sheet of gospel music. He wants to make sure that they're aligned in the gospel, therefore they're going to be aligned in the mission of the gospel, and that's going to yield various praxis and various unities between him and within the Roman congregations. So Paul writes, and in, in, in chapter one, he kind of opens up by you know saying, "I'm an apostle, you know, set apart by God," and he then gives his little tweet-length summary of the gospel, and then he apologizes for why he hasn't visited Rome sooner and then he he then then he gives them his his basic thesis of the letter which is the revelation of the righteousness of God and how it comes through faith and then after that he points out the reason why we need the gospels because the whole world is captive and mired in sin and he, and he talks about the gentiles the pagans he talks about their their ignorance their idolatry, their immorality, and their impurity. And this this is something that a standard Jew would heartily agree with. It's a denunciation of of the elements of of the pagan world and their their anti-God forms of worship and idol-making. But then in chapters 2 and 3, Paul turns. He turns the tables on an imaginary Jewish opponent. 
And he basically says, look, you know, merely presiding in judgment over those pagans, pointing out how they are judgeable, will not excuse you for judgment. You know, we Jews, we may possess the law, but it only really counts if you do it. Even partaking of circumcision or the other emblems of belonging to Israel, they will not excuse you from the final judgment. At the end of the day, we have to accept the fact that, yes, God is faithful to his people, but he's also impartial to his, in his judgments. God is faithful to Israel, but he cannot let Israel, the Jewish people, off the hook with their own sin. Otherwise, how could he judge the world? And Paul comes to the inevitable conclusion that Jews and Gentiles alike are both in the dock before God. So whether you have the law or not, whether you're in the covenant or not, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, we all stand in the same position condemned, becoming fitting objects even of God's wrath. And that's not a pleasant subject. I mean, I don't, I don't want a wrathful God. I, wanna, I want God who's more like a cosmic version of Santa Claus with the voice of Morgan Freeman. That's the type of God I want. I don't want an angry God. I want happy God. And yet... The gospel only makes sense if you understand the reality of sin, the idolatries in the human heart, how we have all in our own ways internalized our own Putin, to put it that way. We have all become ones who violate God's covenant before God and broken his laws and his commandments, whether you have the Jewish law or whether you do not. So Paul sort of paints a pretty grim and dark picture. But then he changes tack. He says sin, death, condemnation, that is not how the story ends. God intends to put the world to right and he will do it through his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his death saves us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day even the very presence of sin and evil in this world. Look at chapter 3, verses 21. Look how Paul makes an immediate contrast with what he's just said. You know, the whole world is locked into sin, but then he adds, but now. Something that God has done is going to rectify this situation, rectify and rescue his people. And that is nothing other than the revelation, he says, of the righteousness of God. Interesting fact, understanding the righteousness of God changed European history. Okay? It was this verse, this, this, this term, the righteousness of God, which largely launched the European Reformation. Because once upon a time, there was a monk called Martin. And Martin was really, really conscious of his sin. I mean, he had the record for the most number of hours in a confessional. I mean, how many hours could you spend confessing your sin? How many? Like half an hour? Well, for, for Martin, this is Martin Luther I'm talking about, he spent 14 hours in a confessional confessing his sin. Uh, the, the, the guy had a lot of guilt. He had a guilty conscience and he wanted a merciful God. But he believed the righteousness of God was the righteousness whereby God smites, destroys, judges the wicked. 
But then Martin Luther had something of an epiphany. In light of reading the context of Romans, he, read the, he, he discovered that the righteousness of God is not the righteousness of God to condemn him, but the righteousness of God to acquit him, to deliver him. And it was in this that Luther said he'd found a merciful God, a God who was not eager to condemn him, but a God who was eager to acquit him. Because that is what the righteousness of God is. It refers to God's saving power. I mean, you find this all over the Old Testament. And there's a number I want you to remember. 51. Not Area 51, somewhere in the desert where they hide the aliens. No, this is a different 51. I mean like Isaiah 51, where, where God promises the exiles in Babylon, my righteousness draws near, my salvation is on the way. Or the Psalm 51, save me from blood guilt, O Lord, and I will sing of your righteousness. The righteousness of God is when he saves and rescues his people and proves that he is the God who is indeed mighty to save. That is what the righteousness of God is. It is the saving power of God. And Paul declares here as well, that you don't get it in the, in the law, but the law bears witness to it. In other words, you don't have to convert to Judaism to become a Christian. Okay? This is offered to Jew and Gentile alike on the basis of faith. And just as there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek in the theater of condemnation, so too there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Arab, American, Australian, New Zealand, when it comes to the domain of salvation. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we don't like the idea of talking about sin uh, much. and It's never a particularly pleasant topic, having to deal with your own uh, moral failings. But I, I find the word sin these days is practically meaningless. Sin means naughty but fun. Sin is the kind of thing you're only allergic to if you are a moralizing geriatric. I noticed when I lived in Brisbane, I, there, was a, there was a particular highway on the south side of Brisbane, and there was two shopping malls on either side. And there was one um, shop for a, where you could get certain adult products that was called Sensational. And on the other side of the highway, there was a tattoo parlor called Sin the Skin. Okay? So the, the, the word sin is practically meaningless. It just means naughty but fun. I, I, I tend not to use the word sin. One word that does get people's attention is evil. We know what evil is. You know, you know what Google's motto is? Don't be evil. And if you know anything about Google, they should really try harder at that. But we understand evil because, you know, once upon a time we used to be moral relativists and say, that's true for you, but not for me. But in light of many things that happen in this world, we, no, we believe evil is real. Evil is a real thing. It's not my thoughts and feelings. There is real evil, but this is what we've got to encounter. Evil is not something done by other people. Evil is not done by that political tribe over there or that group of people here or them. It's the evil in me as well. Evil goes straight down the middle of every single one of us. We don't have a vaccine for evil yet. 
Now, maybe we are not megalomaniacal dictators, maybe we are not mass murderers, but we are all in our own way capable of evil. We do evil. If you think people are basically good, watch what they do when no one's looking or when they think no one's looking or see what people do when they're acting anonymously. It's very easy to get people to unleash all the hatred, all the desire and all the wretchedness that they harbour in themselves and that can be us. We know ourselves better than anyone else. We know what evil harbors in our own heart. We know what hatred and greed and selfishness we are all capable of. That is why we all stand in the dock. That's why Paul says all, to paraphrase, have committed evil deeds. And we fall short of the glory of God. And to those of us who have this condition, that we are broken, our moral moral compasses are fractured, We choose evil over goodness. We are addicted to our own selfishness. This is not just bad for ourselves and bad for for us. It is an offense against God. Sin is an act of cosmic treason. We are declaring ourselves of far more infinite worth and value and asserting our own self-justification and self-interest over the creator and for his creatures the human beings he made in his image and that is why we need Jesus Christ that is why we need the good news of his saving power that is why we need to experience the liberating and transformative work of Christ and the Holy Spirit because we are dead in our sins and dead people cannot heal themselves but Paul adds to us what the solution is He says this righteousness of God, this saving power, it comes to everyone who believes. By exercising faith, we are doing this. We are, and remember these words, we are entrusting ourselves to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Where I was faithless, he was faithful. Where I had sin and evil, he bore it away. Where I was rebellious, he was obedient. And he is able to rescue me because I cannot rescue myself. There is no amount of therapy and self-help books that can extract from you the disease and the evil of the human heart, the corruption of the human mind, the perversion of the human soul. I know this. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I've seen the evil that men do. God forgive me, I've done some of it myself. It is in Christ and in Christ alone you can find the power and the liberation from sin and its mastery. And that's what Paul talks about. He then uses three different images, three different ways of describing the saving power of God in the death of Christ. The first image he uses is a forensic metaphor. He talks about justification. You know, being justified freely by his grace. Now, justification refers to your status before God. It means God declares you to be righteous even though you are not. That's not because God bends a few rules or he plays make-believe. No, you are righteous because by faith you are united with Christ. Christ is righteous. Paul will say in chapter 4 that he was handed over for our sins and raised for our justification. 
When you exercise faith in Christ, you are united with him and you share in the Messiah's own vindication. So what is true of him is reckoned to be true of you. You are justified because you are incorporated into the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You are in a right relationship with God and because the relationship is real, the righteousness is real as well. That's what it means by this language of justification. Secondly, Paul also talks about the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is a a commercial image. It's the language of the manumission of slaves. In the ancient world, there's a number of different ways you could find yourself in slavery. You could be a prisoner of war. You could be born into slavery. You could be sold into slavery by your family. You could become a slave as the only alternative to poverty, but it was possible for someone else or for yourself to buy your way out of slavery. Now, I learned a little bit about this language growing up. I was in a family where we had certain issues, so we would make frequent visits to the pawn shop to pawn things, and then it was always a great joy when we were going to redeem the television, bringing the television back home. That was great, we'd have television again. I also had one family member who liked speeding, but did not like paying his parking tickets, his speeding tickets. And he accumulated many of them. And this created a problem because one day the police caught up to him. And he was told he either had to pay his accumulated fines or he had to spend time in the watch house and work it off. And because said relative, uh, by the way, not my wife, in case anyone's wondering, uh, because said relative had more time than money, uh, he decided he would spend some time in the watch house to you know, pay his debt to society. But eventually, uh, being in, in a room with four walls and no window got a bit much, and this relative needed a kinsman redeemer, this guy, to come in and to purchase him um, from his Uh, incarceration at the hands of the state. But he couldn't redeem himself. He had no money. You need someone to come along and pay the price. And that's what Paul is saying. Christ has paid the price for us. That's why he tells the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were purchased at a great price. Christ, also God, has redeemed you with the very blood of his own son. That's the commercial metaphor, redemption. And then finally, Paul will also use what we could call a a cultic or a sacrificial metaphor. Look at verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, my NIV says. Now, in your translations, you will get a little bit of a variety on this. Some translations will talk about Christ as an expiation. That's the removal of sin. Some will say a propitiation an appeasement of wrath, and some try to split the difference by using sort of uh, middling language like sacrifice of atonement. The basic idea here is that Jesus' death functions in a sacrificial way, so the offence caused by your sin, your own evil, is removed and expunged by the death of Christ. In other words, we could say that when sin is expiated, removed, then, then God's wrath is propitiated. Uh, it is appeased. It is taken away. And because of that, 
Though you are not holy, you can be part of God's holy people. Though your sins be like scarlet, you can be white as slow. I mean, this is the language of sacrifice and cleansing. Okay? And Christ is our sacrifice. He is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, yours and mine. And this is the language. And Paul says, you know, God does this. Not because he's lowering standards, but to fulfill his own plan, his own purpose. He does it to demonstrate his justice so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, God's plan is to create a new forgiven people with a new status in a new covenant as a foretaste of the new age. And Paul kind of expands on this in subsequent chapters. In chapter 4, he's going to say, we're all now part of the family of Abraham. Do any of you have memories of um, Sunday school about Father Abraham had a son? Many sons and daughters had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so on you. I won't sing it for you. That would be bad. That would be, that would be terrible. But no, the classic idea, you know, by faith, you're part of the family of faith. Okay? You're one of the children of Abraham. You're united with the messianic seed, Christ. Now in chapter 5 of Romans, he's going to draw this on a panoramic horizon. He's going to say it's not just that you're saved even as a Gentile or a Jew or, or whatever. He's going to say you're now part of this renewed Adamic race. You're part of this new humanity that God is creating for which Christ is the prototype. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about baptism. What it means to die in Christ, to die to the world, to live under the reign and the jurisdiction of grace. In chapter 7, he's going to say you don't need the law to get that. In chapter 8, he's going to talk about this majestic hope for the future and what it means for us. A hope we get with the Holy Spirit who leads us in the struggle against the flesh, the world, the devil and the things that would tie us. To evil, But if we had to think of two immediate implications for what this means, I, I would give you two things, two immediate implications. The first thing is I think Paul is gunning to create a redemption culture in the congregations in Rome. Now remember, Paul is setting out his gospel in theological depth. He does that largely in the first eight chapters. Chapters 9 to 11, he wants to show... Um, the, the Gentile Christians in Rome, how they relate to unbelieving Israel. But then he wants to show them in, in, the, in the last quarter of the book how to be God's faithful people in a pagan city like Rome and then how to learn to live with differences. Okay, He wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. He wants to be a place where they will welcome one another in Christ Jesus. He wants this sort of gospel to soak in them, pervade them, and become the basis of the entire culture within their own communities, that they will be a truly gospelized community. And this is where you're going to have a redemption culture. Now, this is what I find fascinating, is that we don't, we don't have this today. I, I, I don't know about you, but I look around, and what I see is an outrage and pile-on culture. You know, you find some celebrity... Or some politician who said something or did something stupid five years ago. And then there's this mad dash to ritually destroy them. You know? and, 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 and if they belong to that other tribe that you don't like, you enjoy it all the more. We enjoy the pylon. 
We love seeing that person get their just desserts. I remember listening to a talk by a comedian, an American comedian, who says he was once at the epicenter of that. His whole purpose of being on social media was finding out the people he was supposed to hate and to excel at hating them. He, he was the, the, the conductor of the outrage mob. And, that, and that's, how he, that's how he got famous. That's how he led to more opportunities for his comedy act. But then something happened. One day, the outrage mob came for him. And that caused a bit of a crisis in his own thinking. Uh, it took a complete change in all of his values. And while he was you know, processing this, discussing this, he said something that stuck in my mind. You know, with all this outrage and, and desire to get certain people because we don't like them. He said, when did we stop rooting for redemption? We should not rejoice in people's failures, but what we should rejoice in is redemption. I think Paul wants a redemption culture in the churches of Rome. He wants them knowing that God can forgive them. So they should forgive each other. As God has forgiven you, so you must forgive each other. He wants a redemption culture, not an outrage culture in the churches of Rome. The second thing to note is how Paul applies this gospel to the unity of the Roman congregations. Now, it's, it seems from what we can tell from the back half of the book that the Roman Christians were potentially f- fragmentized. What's the word? Fragmentizing. Fragmenting. Fragmenting. That's the word. I won't invent new words that don't exist. They were fragmenting along different lines, maybe along ethnic lines. Those who want a little bit more of the Torah in their life and their spirituality. And there's all these different debates going on in the churches there. And there's a te- there's, there is the temptation for them to be at each other. And, and Paul doesn't want that. I mean, if you look at verses 27 to 31, you kind of see where Paul takes it. I mean, he'll say that there's no boasting, whether that's you know, in one's ethnicity or in effort. But he says, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And then look at verse 29. And if your translations are pretty good, there'll be the word or. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Paul doesn't want his gospel used to create some kind of ethnocentric nationalism where God is on our side and he's against that group, that tribe, that ethnicity. Or you're a little bit closer to the throne of God if your skin's this color. And this, this can be a real temptation. We can do our best to create a vibrant, multicultural church united by one faith. But the temptation for us in Australia is to say that ethnic unity means we give everyone else honorary whiteness. That, that's the danger in, even in multicultural churches. We still think that our own Anglo-dominant culture is normal and the other ones are merely tolerated. That's not what Paul's going for, and certainly not in the second half of the book. He says we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction, which means there is no superiority. In other words, Paul is saying the gospel means not only justification by faith, it means also fellowship by faith. Okay, In a world that is fragmented, divided by all sorts of things, the various isms and identities, where we're all siloed away from one another. 
put in her own echo chamber, force and convulsing in different directions. Paul doesn't want the churches of Rome or our churches today to be like that. Rather, we are to recognize that we have all gone from enmity to friendship with God and thus fellowship with one another. And the things that unite us are infinitely more powerful than anything that may separate us. Now, in the ancient world, this this was incredible because normally religion, power, politics, these were aligned with ethnic groups. Paul is doing something that was incredibly rare and certainly risky. He's creating a trans-cultural, trans-ethnic church. Okay? This was not the way it normally was in most places in the ancient world. And Paul is doing this new thing. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity took root. Because you could disengage your civic loyalty from your loyalty to God, your faithfulness to God. God intends through Christ to create one people made up of Jew and Gentile, Arab and American, even even Queenslanders and Sydney Swan supporters. That's how far the grace of God goes. It goes deep. It goes deep. That is, that is what Paul presents in his gospel here. It is a dense summary of what it means to experience the righteousness of God in Christ, to be justified, to be redeemed, to experience the benefits of his sacrificial death. And if we had time, we could talk about things like adoption and reconciliation. But alas, my dear friends, We are out of time. So on that note, let me pray for us. Our heavenly Lord, we thank you for the the good news we have in Christ Jesus. That in him we we are justified, though we were once guilty. We are redeemed, though we were once in slavery. And through Christ's death, those who are far off and unholy can be near and become your very own children. We pray, Lord, we will live a life worthy of the gospel and we will embody the the redemption, the good news that Christ brings to us. In his name we pray. Amen.